Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. everyone, Stucker you here. And I'm Gabby. Welcome back and thank you once again, all of you who are here, who've supported us all of these months and or years, depending on how long you've been with us. What we're going to be talking about is this very big figure that was suggested, and I, I, I completely forgot to put the name of the patron who actually asked for this episode in this. I know I'm going to go back after this, and when I post the episode, I'm going to mention it directly. But I had a person who requested that we talk about Charles Nungasser. Nungasser? I'm pretty sure that's how I pronounce that, but it's a French name, and I very easily could be getting that horribly wrong. This guy is a bit of a wild card. And when I say that for like a wild card, you know how they usually associate people with like pilots in movies or other things and be, as being um, interesting figures? Wasn't your granddad a pilot and also an interesting figure? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He absolutely was. Um, yeah, he, he was a guy who uh, he never got promoted beyond to the base, like second lieutenant. Second <laughs> he, lieutenant. Which that's the level that you are at when you graduate from college, yeah. like ROTC. Yes. So like he was an officer, but he never rose beyond that position because he continuously kept on fighting with his superiors. He had a great track record for accomplishing his missions, but he continuously he would not play politics. He would fight with he would insult he would mock their choices he would like he was the guy who would not keep his opinions to himself when it came to anything with the military and i don't know about you but at a time in vietnam when the military and government is very keen on not having negative opinions put everywhere yeah he he could not play the political game absolutely not at all this guy was somewhat similar to that except instead of just not playing the political game he was like the equivalent of what would happen if you had a frat boy who had everything handed to him in life, but simultaneously was a genius who knew how to, he, he is that stereotypical image of what you'd expect if almost James Bond was a frat boy, which sounds like a weird thing to say here in the first place, but you have to understand what it is I'm talking about. Because when we're talking about Charles, right, this was a guy who was a pilot. He was a race car driver. He was a ladies' man. He was a cultured elite Parisian. Like he was a person who was, if you wanted to give a stereotypical example of like the Frenchman in a movie who might seduce someone, like in one of those really cheesy romance shows or something like that, this would be him, but also with crippling war injuries. I'm fascinated. Yes, yes, exactly. So his story is insane. Because you're, you're probably like, oh, whoa, tell me more about this. We'll get this. All right. 
Charles Eugene Jules Marie Nungesser. He was born in Paris on March 15th, 1892, which is interestingly, mind you, the same year that the first military contract was issued for an airplane because they had those before. So th th this is where they had um, th they had early forms of like almost like glider like things that would be utilized for scouts effectively. So it it's 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 a very interesting thing that would be put out there in the first place. What were they going to do with these airplanes? Scout. That's Again, it. Th th there was no real war application for this yet. Mind you, for years they had been using hot air balloons and other things, which are, you know, pretty fascinating. And they would use these for war. And balloons were oftentimes used where you would raise up your guys real quick into the sky in order to be able to see things. And then once you had seen things, you would go down and report your findings. Those were pretty dangerous because... Obviously, they were useful for quite a bit of time, but as time went on and weapons got better, balloons were, what, what should I describe this as? Massive freaking targets in the sky that you could shoot. Like you think of people shooting clay pigeons, right, out of the sky. Imagine something that is a thousand times that size. Way easier for people to hit. So they used to fire at these the moment they would see them because they were scouting balloons. You typically wanted to use the early forms of gliders to be able to either send messages really quickly if you had to, or to be able to go over a location to be able to scout. These are the kinds of things that people were be trying to do at that time. And from a young age, this guy, Charles, was into everything that was extreme. He loved sports. He loved boxing. He loved fighting in every way you could imagine. He would eventually drop out of school and he hopped aboard a ship headed to Rio de Janeiro because things were just simply too boring for him back at home. His idea was, from a young age, that he was going to go to Brazil with the intention of working for his uncle who owned a sugar plantation. And Charles, as I said, was a little bit of a wild card. Um, he didn't plan anything out. <laughs> like, he just hopped on a ship and went, yeah, you know, I got an uncle over there. I'm going to go. And then that's what he does. He just goes. And so when he arrives in Brazil without making any kind of plans ahead of time at all, he can't find his uncle. All he knew going into it is that his uncle had a plantation in this region and not any idea of where it actually was or anything like that. He just hopped aboard a ship and went halfway across the world to find it. He didn't send a letter. No, no, he just literally went and that's it. So with his options being very limited and not having any idea of where to go, he continues on to Buenos Aires, Argentina, where he manages to get work even at a young age as an auto mechanic. Because remember, he's super into all these machines and everything from a young age, and it sounds like it's a really cool gig. So he quickly moves from then being a mechanic to and under the hood to behind the wheel of cars because he becomes a race car driver while he's down there like a professional. They had professional race car drivers in the 1800s? Well, not 1800s at this point. It's the early 1900s because he's born in, what, 1892? And this is when he's as uh, he's like a young man. He drops out of school. So he's like, what, 16, 17, 18, 19, around that age? Still. Yeah. So he drops out of school. How fast did these early race cars go? They usually topped out around 50 to 55 miles per hour. That's it. So they speed limit on the... Uh... Little roads, the back roads here. Yeah, and you got to think, these things were janky as hell at that time too. 
These aren't smooth automobiles. This is the time where it's before they have uh, airbags. Yes, way before airbags. Seat belts. Way, uh, yeah, not helmets. Utilized. Oh, they those specialized suits that you wear so you don't get perfectly roasted when your car goes up in flames. Correct, but a number of them when racing would at least wear helmets. Just nothing else. Also, you you probably wouldn't want to wear. A, I say probably wouldn't want to. Some would oftentimes forego helmets because any amount of additional weight on you could, like when the case of riding a horse, slow down your vehicle, and you didn't want that. Honestly, I think early race car drivers were more hardcore. I oh, mean, yeah. their cars went slower, but man, the safety they were measures. also violent. Do you have any <laughs> idea? Remember, we covered the, some of the videos on what they had with the early race car events, where uh, the, the, one of the inventions inventions one of the games that was developed at that time was automobile polo where they would play polo like what you would do on horseback remember the, the game when you're on horseback and you have a a mallet and you I know the what ball? polo is i've never heard of automobile polo yeah, i did a short on it you might not have seen that one when i did it but they literally would play polo while riding around in cars so you would have two-man teams with one person is driving and the other person's in the back of the car and they're like swinging a mallet around trying to hit and people would get super close so oftentimes what would happen is it was a game of chicken when you were racing your car at another car and trying to hit the ball at the same time let's do that no oh, no they had to stop because eventually what they found is that even though it was an exciting event and people would buy tickets to it so many accidents would occur that the cost of repairing the vehicles each time in preparation for the next event was less than the amount of money that they would make from the event. So it was a net loss every single time because when you're just crashing cars constantly, I'm not it's buying difficult this. to make money. I'm not buying this because monster truck, like those monster truck shows exist. It's true, but they usually are crushing old junkers in the first place. And simultaneously, those are in stadiums that would fit thousands of more people than the local events that you're talking about at a fair. I'm going to bring back car polo. Oh my and God. Host it in giant stadiums. Theoretically, so it'll be worth it. You could do that on motorbikes, right? Like you could, that you could have a person. That's worse. Yeah, no, but imagine this motorcycle, right? And a person in a little sidecar. Like, do you remember those like little sidecars that they could attach to, um, that you, that you can attach to, uh, uh the, the motorcycles that someone sits in. Yeah. Imagine that. And that person just has a little mallet and they're swinging it around using it. We are really off topic, but let's circle back to that because I'm going to buy a motorcycle. <laughs> so, yeah, he, he, he's doing race car driving at this point in time and he likes it, but it's still not good enough for him. And it's around that time that he's a race car driver that he ends up meeting another Frenchman who owned one of the early uh, Birot planes. And that made him obsessed with the idea of flying. I'm probably even saying the name incorrectly. Birot? 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 I think it's Birot, right? Would that be because it's French? There's an L in there that you haven't pronounced once. Birot? 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 See, see, it just sounds like I'm going bleh when I do that. So it doesn't really make as much sense. But he, he, he has one of these early planes, right? And he becomes obsessed with the idea of flying. Though, to be fair, the planes at this time were not exactly much faster than the cars because I kid you not, we think of planes being fast. Back in these days, like early 1900s, the planes are somewhere along the lines of 50 or 60 miles per hour. You are going the same speed that you are in the sky as you are on the ground. They are not anything crazy. but 
flying in a wooden canvas plane is probably way more exhilarating than just being on the ground, right? That's got to be so much crazier. So he goes and convinces this new friend that he makes to let him go and take the plane up. Which, seriously, can you imagine the conversation at this time for how that whole thing plays out? Hey, pal, do you have a plane that I could take up? Yeah, oh, I just happen to have it now. This flying thing that we just developed that, you know, has barely any kind of safety features whatsoever and has been around for less than a decade. Sure, man, of course you can take it, even though you have no experience whatsoever in this entire thing. Nah, it's fine. How hard can it be? It, the whole thing is just put together with literally balsa wood and canvas and an engine and could explode. That's no big deal at all. That sounds like a totally simple thing, right? Yeah, no, it's, it's not a simple thing at all. But the guy, for whatever reason, just lets him. He just lets him take his plane, right? And so Charles takes this thing. He's going around up in the air for a few minutes. And after making a safe landing, he's hooked. He like manages to do it immediately off the bat and becomes obsessed with the idea of flying. And so after two weeks, he's like, okay, you know what? I've flown around. I've done a couple minutes of flying here and there. I'm a trained pilot at this point. Me, honestly, he has the level of confidence I have because I'm fully, fully believing that if I were to just get a plane and just like, you know, just, just, just take it up in the air, I'd be, I'd be set. I just know yep. what to do. Yep. I love this guy. And so as this happens, guess what? What? Remember the whole reason he went over into the Americas in the first place? His uncle's plantation. Yeah, yeah. The one that he couldn't find and ended up working away for, I don't know, like several months for a year and just not having any idea where he was. That uncle just magically surfaces at this time. And just so it all works out for him in the end somehow. And he ends up going and working for his uncle for a while at um, like at Buenos Aires. It just happens. We don't even know all the details. I tried searching for as long as I could to find information on how this happened, if it was even real. And all the sources just said, no, it just it just popped up. And he, he went off to with his uncle. I'm sure he probably like put out feelers with the locals like, hey, if you know this guy, this is his name. He owns a plantation. Tell him his nephews here. I'm sure that that's how people did it in the old days. You don't have the internet. You yeah, just you know, ask, you're probably right. You'd ask the lady at the corner store to pass on the message if she sees the guy you're looking for. No, that makes a lot of sense. So he's there for several years. And then eventually the big bad thing breaks out. World War I. And Nungaser decides, hey, I don't just want to be a race car driver. I don't want to be a mechanic. I don't want to work at a plantation. I want to be involved in the action. He feels the call of patriotism and his home French country calling out to him. So he decides, I'm going to go back to France. And when he is there, he goes and enlists in the 2nd E Regiment of Hussars, which Hussars, for anyone who is unfamiliar with it, that is a, uh, a cavalry regiment. And specifically, those are uh, a Hussar regiment is typically a light cavalry regiment. Though actually looking at this, I'm not necessarily sure what it would constitute in France at this time because they used a lot of older terminology for different regiments, from cavaliers to dragoons to Hussars to all these things that didn't quite fit the role that they had in the early 1800s. Though at the time, you know what they also had? What they also have? Lancers. Hey everyone, Sakuya here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. 
Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. In World War One. In World War One, yes. I love World War One because they did not know what the heck they were doing. They were like, we got these weapons from that last war we fought a couple decades ago. Just yep. pull them out. <laughs> Dust them off. A lot of people feel shocked when thinking about how cavalry even worked at this time. Like, why would they do that when they knew the technology they had? The crazy thing is, because of the previous war that had broken out, there was an event. And I know I did a short video on this when it came to the Franco-Prussian War before the German Empire was formed. At the time, people believed that cavalry were, was already on its way out. And then after a specific battle between France and Prussia at the time, which would then go on to form Germany, the cavalry regiment that had been utilized at that time had a massive breakthrough and almost routed an entire front of the French force. And it, they looked on it, and yes, they lost around half the men when they did so, but a vastly outnumbered cavalry force managed to drive off something that was five, six, ten times its number in terms of infantry. And so at this time, the people were starting to doubt cavalry. They're like, oh, no, there's still a use for cavalry. We can still do this. The, the charge, the lance, like that is still something that can be utilized for shock and awe. And so it kept forward. It was still a part of standard military doctrine because they didn't experience a massive tragedy with cavalry earlier. So yeah, cavalry still was quite well in use going into World War I, and that's a whole thing with that. Anyway, this guy, you would think from the beginning, there's no way that he can do well in this. This is a pilot that we're talking about. Why is he a cavalryman? Well, at the time that all this is going on, to become a pilot... That is something that you already had to be integrated within any of these armies going into it, like into the war. You couldn't just become a pilot. The pilots at this time were the knights of the sky, right? In order to become one, you had to accomplish something great. You had to know a guy. You had to be politically connected. You had to be gentry, effectively. Nepotism, a nepo baby. Yeah, seriously, you did. And one of the key reasons that they had for that is because there was very, 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 very few planes at the time. And so the ones that were, this is at a time where they didn't have good anti-air tracking capabilities. So when you were up in a plane, the casualty rate for pilots was astronomically lower in comparison to any other kind of field within the military. Because it was, when you were up in the sky, 
it was really hard to hit you. Now, later on in the war, like I believe going into 1917 or so, they actually developed technology that would be allowed troops on the ground to hit aircraft much more easily, like with anti-aircraft guns. But going into the war, they didn't. So when you were up in the sky, it was pilot versus pilot, which meant that it was almost like knights dueling in the sky. And when they were first going around and fighting, and I know I'm getting slightly off track when talking about this, but I have to, I kid you not. Imagine you are a pilot that next to you, 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 you're just up in your plane, you have a box, and in that box is a bunch of grenades and nails. Basically, what are they like nails darts. For? Like they're darts. They're okay. war darts. So these these big, thick darts, right? Like middle, long metal spikes. And as you're flying over an enemy position, you take the box, Do just you dump just it off throw the side. It? Yep. You just dump it off the side as you go. Because the idea was that they were, they had been calculated to the point that the weight of yeah, each dart. Yeah, they would point it, downwards and they yes. would just kill you. Oh, yes. no, no, no. Yeah. So the thing about it is very, very few soldiers ever died for anything like that. It just wasn't very effective. Okay, the other good. thing that they had that they would try is as flying over enemy positions, the other time thing that would be in the box was grenades. So they would literally have those land grenades and just be chucking them out the window. Not even out the window. It's an open cockpit. So they're just chucking it out the side as they're going, throwing grenades over into enemy positions. Those were like the initial bombers. Those are the initial ones. And that, those were bombers. And so when those pilots would fight other pilots, you know how they fought? They fought with handguns. Handguns. They didn't have machine guns that would work. They eventually would attach machine guns to it, right? But this initially is before the time that they had, um, the, the, you know how the, there's the whole propeller and then the, the bullets would be shooting through the propeller in gaps? Yeah. Bef that technology was something that was developed by the British. And I believe, I can't remember the year, but I believe they developed it around the year 1915 or so. Prior to that, you had to have guns on the outside effectively and as pilots were flying by each other they were just taking pot shots like gangster drive-bys trying to shoot each other out of the sky it sounds so stupid doesn't it it really does and this is one of the reasons like if you were a pilot you were seen as a knight it was something that it was very hard to kill you in the first place and on top of that if you scored a victory it was like this grand honorable moment that you were able to do at least in the beginning technology would change over time. And also, we need to talk about what ended up happening with Charles himself going into this. See, Charles, as I said, was a cavalryman, right? And he didn't have any opportunity to do what it is that he wanted until one event would occur where during a patrol, he had several soldiers under his command go and commandeer a German Moors patrol call, car. Because they did have cars at this time that they were using in war. They were just kind of crappy. So the Germans had had a patrol car that his cavalry unit came across and they managed to surprise it, kill its occupants, and then take it back as a, as a war trophy, right? Like People they got have it. literally been stealing other teams' vehicles in war forever, haven't they? Oh yeah, they? absolutely. Absolutely. You kidding me? Going back in any point in history, you'd have been stealing the enemy's horses if you could. This was just that with mechanical vehicles. That's all it was. And this action impressed his superiors so much that he was subsequently awarded the uh, Medal Militaire, like the military medal, and was granted a request to be transferred to the Service Aeronautique, which the aeronautic services, like he was going to be transferred to the Air Force before it was ever actually the Air Force for France. So 
Nguesser finally gets what it is that he wants. He reports to the Squadron VB-106 in April of 1915. So it's fairly early on in the war, only about a year in. In fact, actually, at this point that we're talking here, just a bit over half a year in. And he's flying at this time a Voisin 3 LAS, and he managed to shoot down his first plane, a German Albatross, in July of 1915. Unfortunately, this should not have happened. What do you mean? No, I don't mean that he, he wasn't skilled enough. He was definitely skilled. Oh. It shouldn't have happened because he wasn't supposed to be flying it there. Oh. Like, he was allowed to fly. But mind you, that, that wasn't a problem. That wasn't a problem. Um, unfortunately, he, he, he had taken his voice in without permission. He took it without permission and, and took it up anyway to fight because he was looking for an enemy to fight, which then resulted in an eight-day house arrest for his insubordination. So he was awarded and then simultaneously punished then at the same time. And despite this disciplinary action, as I said, he would receive the Croix de Guerre, like the, the cross of war, and was ended up, he ended up being sent to, the, uh, to train as a full pilot for war in Newport fighters, right? These are the new line of fighters that they're going to be utilizing. And he decides at this point, hey, I like this. I have a taste for combat. Not only that, I'm good. Not only am I good, I want the enemy to know that I'm good. So he puts his art skills to the test. And you know how in this day, I remember I told you how these guys were very show-offy. They were flamboyant. They were the kind of guys that would uh, do crazy stuff and stunts. Yeah. Remember how you have the whole thing with the German Red Baron and that he had emblazoned his plane at like bright red in order to stand out, which you think, hey, you don't want your plane to be seen because then it could be shot down. In the early wars, didn't they all paint their planes and decorate they did, their planes? They did, yes. Because even the night witches, remember they drew flowers on their planes? Yes. Yes, except that was World War II. Very different from what would well, happen in World but War One. In all of those wars, like the early planes, like nowadays, if we paint our planes bright pink, <laughs> good luck, Chuck. Yeah. But back in the day. Oh, exactly. That was their thing. And they and he did this, right? He decides that he is going to have his own moniker that is going to go on the plane. He's going to have his own emblem. So what he creates is something that starts at first. It's very simple: a simple skull and crossbones. You know, kind of like what you'd see for a Jolly Roger for a stereotypical representation of a pirate. A pirate. Right? Yes. But as time goes on, he starts getting a little bit fancier, right? On top of that, he then adds a large heart that goes around it with black and white outline and then a skull with a bullet hole under a coffin with the pair of crossbones, right? Because it's, it's representing like a headshot, like it's, you're, you're shot through the head. So that, that's what that is, along with two funeral candlesticks. So the idea of it, as he goes in, is that he calls himself the Knight of Death. Did he have multiple kills to back this up? Or oh my just God, that yes. One? No, no, he got so many. Here's the thing. A little bit of a spoiler when saying this. He is one of the most accomplished pilots in all of World War I. Is it because he... um. He had no filter for his actions. Oh, yeah. He had no, no impulse control. That's it. Literally no impulse control. Here's the thing. And the next thing that I'm about to tell you is an exact example of that. The man was so excited by having his new emblem and everything that he had set up that he decides to celebrate by going and flying over the nearby town of Nancy that is there at 30 feet above the ground. <laughs> 30 feet. 
Not 300. They have to get 30. the best look possible. They can't see it from 300. This, yeah, this guy is flying a plane at the equivalent of like what a two-story house is. He is just cresting that, right? And he is, he is flying this plane over the town in order to give everyone inside of it a good new look at his plane. And as usual, because he was pulling off a stupid stunt that could have caused an accident, he ends up getting placed in jail again for eight days. His military superiors love him, but simultaneously hate him. Like, it's just not one of the things that is going to be good, right? And so, in fact, there's even one line that his, uh, his commander told him, and that was, if you are going to pull these stupid stunts and do aerobatics, please do them over the enemy lines. Did he do them over the enemy lines? Oh my lines? God, he did. So the next thing that he do does is he jumps into his plane literally as soon as he gets out of jail. And then he flies over the German lines, does the exact same thing to show off his plane, and then goes back to his commander to report what he did. And you know what happens? He gets put on He gets arrested again. Because <laughs> okay. A, he took the plane without permission to do that. And B, he was pulling off a stupid stunt that at that low, he very easily could have been shot down out of the sky, which would have been a massive waste of resources for the military. But he didn't get shot down out of the sky, so. No, no, it worked. It worked. But holy crap, the balls on this guy for what he would do. He did this constantly all the time, right? So November 1915, after retraining, he gets transferred to the 65th Squadron and was later then attached to the famous Lafayette Squadron. This was something that was composed of American volunteers who, since America had not entered into the war yet, they were specialists that had come over to fight. And while visiting this squadron on one of his convalescent periods where he was recuperating from his wounds, because I'm telling you this right now, all the stuff that I've described so far for his stupid stunts, he put himself in danger a lot. So he got injured a lot. And later on in this episode, I'm going to be giving you a full list of all the injuries that he experienced over the course of this time. He's recuperating from his wounds. And then he goes and borrows a plane and shoots down another German while he's there. So that by the end of 1916, he had 21 confirmed air kills. How do you claim your air kills? You have to be, uh, it has to be witnessed by someone else at the time. You can't necessarily do stuff as a, as a solo pilot in the same way that snipers, there might be snipers who have more kills than the ones that are in the top list, but this is why they say something, something confirmed with plus whatever unconfirmed because they have self-reporting and confirmed reports. So because snipers and whatnot work in teams in the same way that pilots do, you rarely ever would see a pilot who is acting completely on their own. So they have to have witnesses that back up the fact that you scored a victory in this case to count it. But what if you killed everyone? If you were the only one left, it's one of your teammates that would. Yeah, but what if your teammates got killed? You uh, then you reported what you could. But you did all the heavy lifting. Yeah, you could. But typically speaking, they wouldn't fight to a man. If you were flying in with 10 planes and you already lost four planes, the remaining six are going to turn around and go. Like you do not fight to the last man. The military equipment is too valuable. You can't risk that. But then you're a coward. Well, yeah, but with the equipment there, again, they could not risk it. They absolutely could not. And so, but the thing is, with Nungasair, this doesn't matter. He is skilled. And despite being such a decorated pilot, he was again repeatedly placed under house arrest, 
on more than one occasion for flying without permission. This is something that he did constantly. He was not a guy who liked the way that things worked in the military. Yeah, he wanted to fight. Yeah, he wanted the glory. He wanted all that stuff. But you know what he didn't want? The rules. He didn't want rules. He wasn't going to follow orders. He was his own special brave boy. <laughs> I'm just shook at the fact that he kept taking military planes. You know this is the early 1900s because there is absolutely no way that can happen mm -hmm, nowadays. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you know what one of the things that he did was? And this is where it's going to get really spicy. Remember how I told you that he would borrow planes in order to go and fight the Germans without permission? You know, yeah. doing the thing that a war pilot should. Do you know what he also did when he would borrow planes? What? He would borrow planes and then fly them back to Paris without getting permission to go on leave so that he could party it up back in the city with women and alcohol. And then the next morning fly back before muster. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I wanna teach you everything you need to know about US history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode where I'd like to tell you a story. Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws. I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. Was he a... That just doesn't sound very No, smart. he did it. He did this constantly, and he got in trouble a lot for it. You have to think, right? This guy, and I didn't get any pictures of this. I really should have gotten some pictures so I could place it in there. He was regarded as stereotypically ruggedly handsome, like a stereotypical handsome, rugged Frenchman, like who was, like for, who was a warrior. He was extremely popular because at this time, the pilots and their exploits, they're being talked about everywhere because they are the heroes of the military. So if a pilot of yours is doing something great, their stories and exploits are going to be published everywhere in all the newspaper, on the radios, on everywhere you can back in the home country. That is going to be done. So every single time he flew back into Paris, he was his own little celebrity and he would get free drinks, 
Women would be all over him. He could do whatever it is that he wanted and he would party it up every single time. Like seriously, one of the things that would happen, right, is that he would show up, do all of this, be the stereotypical embodiment of an ace fighter pilot. And then he would arrive back the next morning for patrol, still dressed in the tuxedo that he wore out to a party the previous night. In the front line of World War One. But at least he showed up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, not only did he show up, sometimes he brought some of the women back with him. First of all, <laughs> you cannot, no matter who you are, you cannot fly me to a freaking war zone. Yeah, yeah. No, so he did. He would straight up fly a plane that he illegally borrowed, take it back to Paris, party that night, pick up a chick, and take her back with him for a night. She was, she was down. She was a real, a real ride or die. Yeah. Yeah. Good for he, him. He was the king of sociability, effectively, in this sense. He, he was the stereotypical French ace pilot seducer. That's all that he was. And it's, it's really funny because in a stark contrast to him, there was another pilot who was actually the top French pilot at the time, René Funk. And this guy was even better, but he was only focused on stuff in war. And this guy was focused almost exclusively on matters of war. So the really funny detail is, is the fact that even though Funk was a better pilot overall, as I said, he wasn't nearly as popular amongst the men or the newspapers or what was going on at the time because <laughs> Charles, Charles was the one that showed up everywhere and was like the life of the party. That was him. But Remember how I said earlier that he, he had a tendency to do very stupid stuff and get in trouble a lot, not just with his superiors, but he would get injured? Yeah. Yeah, so after one of his stunts, he ends up suffering a very bad crash on the 6th of February, 1916, and ends up breaking both of his legs. But he is then injured again and again many more times after that. So not only did he break his legs during that crash, but he would, he would subsequently suffer from so many additional injuries that in order to get into his cockpit in the first place, he had to be helped. The man's legs basically stopped being able to work. They, like, he could walk, he could do all these other things, and he could kind of dance, but he had so much difficulty moving around with time and was in such pain, but so driven by the need to fight that, again... One of his mechanics, his best friend at the time, had to help him into the plane. And the thing is, the reason why this would happen is, as I said, he would do crazy stunts. And he had a particular favorite maneuver that he loved to do over his enemy, which although it worked, it definitely worked. It was dangerous. See, what he would do is he would do something called the whip stall. He would get above his opponent as high as he could, and then he would dive down sharply, gaining massive amounts of speed and then he would pull out from the dive somewhat below the enemy and then he would pull up firing a burst into the plane's belly so basically like like this if if the plane is going across he would pick up as much speed as he could surprise it and then immediately stall the plane flipping up so that he could shoot it from its soft underbelly where it has some of the weakest amount of armor and that would tear those things apart it, it was it, it, it was crazy right and what would end up happening is that he could easily deliver a fatal blow if it worked fine. But if it did not, then he would have no choice but to stall at the top of the zoom with very little airspeed. Because if he missed, mind you, again, he would end up zooming 
in front of the other airplane. And by then, he will have slowed to almost a crawl speed. Meaning, do you remember in cartoons or seeing anything like that, Gab, where a plane would, or, or not even a plane, but when you'd see Wiley E. Coyote or any of those other figures where they've jumped off of a cliff or something, or they've run off the edge of something and they're still running and it doesn't look like, they, they, it hasn't registered in their brains that, hey, there's no longer any ground before me. So they seem to kind of freeze in midair. Yeah. That would be him, except with someone pointing a gun at him. And because of this, he could get very seriously injured and this would happen quite a bit. So he would get a lot of kills, but also this would contribute greatly to his frequent injuries. Now, besides the early setbacks that he would experience, he would become an ace in April of 1916. He was wounded on the 19th of May, 1916, but he would continue to score victories. And this was a streak that would only end once he was wounded again in June. Nevertheless, by the year, end of the year, as I said, he had 21 aerial victories. And it was during this time that he managed to down two German aces, Hans Schilling on the 4th of December, as well as Kurt Tauber on the 20th. He was impressive, but he was high risk, high reward. He had a silver Newport 17 plane that was decorated, as I said, with his black harp-shaped field, within which was painted in white the macabre Jolly Roger, the coffin in two candles. And everywhere that he went, his moniker of the night of death, which, you know, paraphrased from what he had, like the French word mort, which, you know, death, it was a play on word from the German mors. So the reason he adapted that whole thing in the first place for the Germans and he would publicize his exploits to the Germans it harkens back to that first car that he stole, the Morse. So it was a Morse. Like, that was the whole point of it. Fast forward a bit of time, though. Early 1917, he had to return to the hospital again for treatment of injuries, but he does manage to avoid being completely grounded. He had managed to push his score to 30 planes taken down by August 17th of 1917 when he downed his second Gotha bomber. But injuries from a car crash in December ended up putting him out of action for a month. And so he had to become an instructor for a time, teaching people how to fly before he could return back to combat missions with Squadron 65. He still flew a Newport, the Newport 25, even though his squadron had managed to re-equip with SPADs. And by May 1918, he had 35 victories, including a shared victory with Jacques Girard and Eugene Camplin. Eventually, he was raised to an officer of the Legion of Honor. The guy was accomplishing more and more. By August of 1918, he managed to receive his own SPAD-13 aircraft and would resume his winning streak further. On August 14th, he would shoot down four observation balloons for wins 39 through 42. And the following day, he ended up sharing a win with Marcel Henriot or Henriot and another pilot and finished the war with 40 three official victories. Remember when I said he was one of the most accomplished pilots in all of France? By the end of the war, he had the third highest number. The only other ones who had higher scores were René Fonck and Georges Guinemer. In his flying career, Nungesser would receive dozens of different military decorations, not just from France. He would get them from everywhere from how accomplished he was, from Belgium, Montenegro, the United States, Portugal, Russia, even Serbia. He would get medals from everywhere just because of how much he was doing. 
And remember what I said, that the guy was prone to injury? No. Like a lot? No, you haven't mentioned it, actually. No, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I went ahead and put this at the end because I didn't want to spoil essentially how much it was that he was injured over the course of this, but it needs to be said. I found a summary of all of the injuries that he faced. And so if we're going to put it all together, a succinct summary of these injuries would be as follows. Skull fracture, brain concussion, eternal injuries. And it had in parentheses when I was researching multiple. <laughs> like it's not even going to specify where it is. It just says parentheses multiple because he had it happen many different times. Five fractures of the upper jaw, two fractures of the lower jaw, piece of anti-aircraft shrapnel embedded in right arm, dislocation of knees, left and right, dislocation of left knee, again, bullet wound in mouth, bullet wound in ear, atrophy of tendons in left leg, atrophy of muscles in calf, dislocated clavicle, dislocated wrist, dislocated right ankle, loss of teeth, like, it doesn't even specify the amount, just loss of teeth. Many of them were lost. Contusions too numerous to mention. Um, I'm assuming he doesn't live too long, does he? The funny detail? Kind of, yes and no. And we're going to get into that because it's one of those things that is cool, sad, and yet mysterious at the same time. Mysterious. Mysterious. You'll see what it is that I mean because we're now going to be talking about him after the war. But again... That final line when I was reading the medical summary of this was freaking hilarious. Literally states, contusions too numerous to mention. <laughs> like there's too many, we can't even count. <laughs> Had he not been in the hospital so often for all of these injuries and forced to quit flying before the end of the war, who knows how long his list could have been. Like he was the third most accomplished pilot, but he could have had any number of more. But the war would end. And so after the conclusion of World War I in November of 1918, he tried to do other stuff. He tried to organize a private flying school, but he failed to attract enough students. There just wasn't really the funds to do so for most people. As post-World War I, there was an economic recession that left many of the World War I aces without a job. Didn't matter how accomplished they were, there just wasn't work for them. So he decided to take his chances with cinema, which was a brand new thing in the United States. And here was the day where heroic flying and all of these aces, oh, this was a very popular theme for people. And movies started being made all over the place about all these pilots and their accomplishments. And dozens of these films end up getting churned out. And it was when Nungesser was in the U.S. doing the film The Sky Raider that he became interested in the idea of doing a transatlantic flight, something that hadn't happened before. And he told his friends that the next time he made a trip to America, it was going to be by air. Again, something that had not happened yet at this point. So in late 1923, Ngesser goes and heads up a ill-starred voyage to Havana in Cuba. He tries his hand at aircraft sales in order to be able to make some money, because again, World War I pilot, hugely accomplished, of course, this is going to be something that is going to be popular for people. And he ends up getting invited by the secretary to the president, Jose Manuel Cortina. When he later was vacationing in Paris, Nungesser seemed to have assumed that he had received an official order from the Cuban government to sell them planes. 
So he's like, oh my God, yes, this is an official request for me to sell them planes, so I can definitely do this. He goes and brings four World War I spads with him, as well as two fellow veterans in order to show these off. And he based the spads with the Cuban Air Corps at Campo Colombia, and he proposes that the Cubans buy 40 or more of the airplanes from him. And when the Cuban army pleads with him saying like, hey, no, we cannot do this. We do not have the money in the budget. He is so aggressive to the Cuban Congress about this for buying airplanes that the Cuban army chief of staff, General Alberto Herrera, he goes and threatens to throw Nguesser's party out of the country because they're trying to sell planes that aggressively <laughs> that they get pissed off and threaten to deport him. So on the 10th of February, 1924, the French ace ends the trip by, instead of selling any planes, going and hosting a fundraising flying expedition with all proceeds going to charity. Doesn't work out. And that brings us then to the infamous flight. See, there was another guy by the name of Francois Colli, who was a navigator that was already known for making historic flights across the Mediterranean. And he planned on making a transatlantic flight of his own in 1923. Then at the time with his wartime comrade, a guy by the name of Paul, who was another World War I ace. But when Paul goes and drops out because he gets injured from a crash, they're now scrambling to get a replacement because they want to be the first person to make this flight. Because if I recall correctly going into this, there was a newspaper at the time, and I can't remember the name of the newspaper, but they offered a $1,000 award, I believe it was, to the first person who could make the flight across. And naturally, at this time, pilots, even as skilled as they are, they don't really have many opportunities to be able to make as much money doing what it is they love. So a number of people are planning to make this exact trip. So again, Paul drops out because he gets injured, and Nungesser comes along as a replacement. So Nungesser and Coley then take off from Le Bourget Airport near Paris on the 8th of May, 1927, heading for New York in their little Leos. I'm not even going to say the word. Lasso. It's it's in French, what it means is the white bird. And I cannot pronounce the name. And I apologize for anyone listening. It's the white bird aircraft. And this was a Levasseur PL-8, which was a biplane that was actually painted with Nungesser's old World War I insignia. So they were going off in style in front of the crowds. But that was the last that anyone would ever see of them. That was the end. Their plane was last sighted heading past Ireland. And when they never arrived, the assumption was their plane had crashed in the North Atlantic Ocean. Only two weeks later, an American aviator by the name of Charles Lindbergh would successfully cross from New York to Paris and was given a massive hero's welcome by the French, even as they were mourning the loss of their own heroes, Nguesser and Coley. Over the years, there have been a lot of different investigations to try and figure out what exactly happened to the men. Most believe that their plane would come down in the Atlantic due to a rain squall, but the aircraft has to this day never been recovered. It's just, there's nothing that they could do. The leading alternative theory is that the aircraft may have made it over to Maine and crashed, but again, nothing has ever been found. It's sad here in the end because a report in the French newspaper that Nungesser and Coley had actually arrived safely was then followed by a detailed description of festivities. 
But this was ultimately revealed to be a hoax and it pissed off an immense amount of people because they firmly believed that they had done it. And so the French at this time were excited about their heroes making it only to discover that the entire thing was false. And again, they were angry. So it's morbidly funny. But when Charles ended up actually arriving to Paris, he was specifically warned, or not when he arrived, but before he left, he was specifically warned to delay his arrival there a few weeks to give the French time to calm down. Because it was believed that if he shows up only a week or two after this story broke about them safely landing in America, which was false, the French would be so angry that he could potentially be mobbed. Ultimately, that didn't happen. He still went anyway. He shows up and he does get a hero's welcome. But it's again, in the end, one of those mysteries that this guy, this crazy guy who no matter how many stupid stunts he pulled over the course of war, a single accident over the ocean is what it took to bring him down. And really, in the end, it's kind of it. You can't really mess with nature. Either way, that is the end of today's episode. Everyone, I hope that you really enjoyed listening to the story about the ace French pilot of World War I, Charles Nungesser. And I thank you all very much for sticking with us all this time. Everyone, I hope you have a good rest of your day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you all. And goodbye. Bye. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.